Friends, uh, we are in the book of the book of Hosea, so if you joined us, and I, I'll read the Bible reading as we go throughout the message uh, due to time restraints uh, this morning. Uh, it's been good to hear about God's work and um, uh, overseas, and it's good to remember, even as we've sung, that God is there for us. But this God who is there for us is also a God of judgment as well as a God of salvation. And uh, I just make this comment right at the beginning of the, serv- or the sermon, that the church of God, this is us, and the wider church, is called to live in such a way that people will see the beauty of God and glorify Him. And so there's a call upon the church, whether it's in France, or whether it's in Australia, whether it's in Brazil, or the UK, wherever it happens to be, that the church lives in such a way that the people see the beauty of God and glorify Him. And see, 1 Peter 2.12 says this, and this is really applicable to us in Australia, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Um, you don't dare go to social media whenever a Christian comment is made somewhere because it will depress you, all the attacks you will receive on social media. And... Uh, That's why I stay off those debates, because I don't want to be depressed every day and be attacked by people every day. But there is something beautiful, whether uh, here or overseas, that when Christians live such good lives, even when they accuse them of being wrong, even if they accuse them of being homophobes, even if they accuse them of being violent, even if they accuse them of uh, being gossips or hypocrites, that they may see their good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, hoping that they will see the gospel and see the change and come to Christ. But the question is, what is the church like? Is it united or divided? Is it pure? Is it immoral? Is it selfless or is it selfish? Is it forgiving or unforgiving? Is it merciful or is it heartless? Is it Christ-centered or me-centered? Is it prayerful or self-dependent? Is it loving or hateful? Is it Christ-exalting or Christ-insulting? Is it Bible-soaked or is it worldly-driven? Is the church God-glorifying or a tragedy? And we just ask that question for reflection because it matters how we live. It matters how we live. Now, we know the nation of Israel in the 8th century BC was a tragedy. And by the way, if you have Bibles in front of you, we're on page 734. Worthwhile having it, we'll be flicking through different... uh, chapters this morning, but uh, they were a living tragedy, and God was about to judge them for their sinfulness. You see, they should have known God, and they should have lived in light of knowing God, but they didn't. And we saw last week uh, in chapters 1 to 3 that the prophet Hosea prophesied the exile of the northern kingdom uh, due to their spiritual adultery, uh, where they followed other gods. And in 722 BC, Assyria took over Israel and exiled or deported the northern ten tribes. But at the same time we saw last week, that as well as judgment, it, God won't give up on his people. He's still going to do a new thing. So he uses judgment to refine them and he says there is a good day to come. But we asked this morning, why were they such a tragedy? And let me say, why is the church of God in many places of the world such a tragedy? 
Why is it that people will sometimes look at the church and see immorality and see child abuse and all types of evil things and turn away from God? Well, he says here in chapters 4, 1 and, chapter 4, 1 and 19, there are people without understanding. There's the absence of the knowledge of God. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement or knowledge of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. We don't have that level of sinfulness, I hope, here. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea are swept away. Everything is swept away. They didn't love God and they didn't love their fellow Israelites. They were living tragedy. Why weren't they? They didn't have a knowledge of God, he says. Now, Derek Kidner puts it this way. They should have loved God and their fellow Israelites, but rather what should have been a home and a family has turned into a den of lust and violence. Instead of a home and a family, it was a den of lust and violence. I say, how did they come that way? Verse 6 says, my people will be destroyed from lack of knowledge. It says, they should know me, they should know my covenant, they should know my commands, and they should obey them, but they don't. They may know about them, they may know about me as Yahweh, but they don't know me. There's no intimacy in there, there's no closeness to God. There's no intellect and emotion and will committed to God and his covenants. Friends, you can know about God. And I, when you think about France, and uh, I have relatives, by the way, in, in Greece, and most of my, my relatives, even in Australia, are atheists. Some of them are believers, um, religious, but many of them are atheists, and I think that represents a lot of Europe, why the gospel needs to go back into Europe and... But they know about him, and if I have conversation with them, oh, yeah, we know God, you know, I've been a Christian all my life. And then when you start to talk about the Bible, they say, oh, I don't believe that. Oh, I didn't know that was in there. And for Israelite, the Israelites in Hosea's time, they may have said, yeah, we're God's people, while they served the other gods, while they committed sins and evil. But they did not know him. They didn't know him. You know, I remember being at uh, the Sydney Olympic Park Aquatic Centre once. I was timekeeping, it must have been a club event with some other people and um, thinking about the holiday of really knowing God rather than just knowing about God and uh, there was a fellow timekeeper and she was a Christian. She said, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic. And I said, uh, but I don't, I don't go to church. I said, uh, I'm married to a Muslim man. I said, that makes it interesting, right? I wonder where this conversation will go. This is a, a sort of nominal Christian Catholic married to a Muslim man. She said, my kids are Muslim. They have to be Muslim, being married to a Muslim. And I um, said, my sister, by the way, is a religious Baptist. And uh, so there you go. So you, a, a bit of everyone. We're just chatting while we're quick time. Yep, 53.5. Um, and we go back to the conversation. And a lot of our conversation, I remember, was about just not identifying with a religion, whether it's Islam or Christianity or Buddhism but knowing the God of the Bible and having faith in Jesus to start a relationship with God. I said, it's not about religion and rule-keeping. It's about intimate relationship with God. 
I read also uh, just a couple of other illustrations of a businessman who had served as a church deacon for years before. A profound experience of God's grace brought him to a renewed commitment. So all these years in church, and as he, as he opened up his heart and uh, just to the Word of God and the truth of God and the power of God, he just came alive. And this is what he wrote. I'm not only delighted by the chance to grow in the knowledge of God, but I'm astounded by what I didn't know. And to think I've raised a family, run a business, and helped lead a church all these years without really knowing God. You know what I mean. Who he is, what he said, how to receive his guidance, how to do things his way. My deepest regret is all the decisions I've made without prayer and a real biblical basis. People who are in churches, serving even, who don't really know God. Well, there are others, though, who are in churches who have no knowledge of God and are very confused, like this man, for example. Uh, he resisted a new ministry to the, ch- to the poor in the church. The church was establishing a ministry to the poor. And he said, why are we helping the poor? God helps those who help themselves, he said, thinking he was quoting the Bible. When he was told that it was from Paul Richard's almanac and wasn't in the Bible at all, he said, well, it's true anyway. Right? People who don't have a knowledge of God, don't have the heart of God, and are not willing to serve for the glory of God. So you have the knowledge of God. Do I have the knowledge of God? The Israelites didn't. It was a recipe for disaster. And he tells them why they don't have a knowledge of God. It was the guilty and the failed priesthood. But let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another for your people are like those who bring charges against a priest. No, no one really understands uh, that verse and what the translation is a bit messy there. But you stumble day and night and the prophets stumble with you, so I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you have ignored the law of our God, I will also ignore your children. We know from verse 6 he's talking about the failure of the priests. The people who should have taught the people uh, the truth of God had failed. In modern days, uh, the equivalent would be pastors. So if God was writing to us, to, to the church, that would be uh, to the pastors. If the people are lacking the knowledge of God, he says it's because the pastors had failed to teach uh, the truth of the, the knowledge of God. And Fred, sadly, we all fail in different ways, and I'm sure I fail to teach correctly at times. And I pray that God will take what I say and use it uh, to grow us. But there are false teachers, there are pastors and priests who teach that all paths lead to God, Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha. There are those who say, well, we're all good people, and in the end, we will all end up in heaven. Don't waste your money sending anyone to France, or to Burkina Faso, or to Nepal, or to wherever it happens to be. Don't waste your money. God will just accept us all in the end. Hell is not real. Focus on heaven. Jesus only rose spiritually. He's still dead. The gospel writers were talking about a spiritual renewal, not a physical resurrection. Same-sex relationships are acceptable acceptable to God and they're glorifying to God. If that's how God has made you, go ahead. The devil is a force, not a personal being. You have to worry about him. Jesus wants you to prosper materially. Just believe it and you'll have it. So there's all types of uh, false teaching uh, around by teachers. 
But more, these priests took the opportunity to prosper through their priestly duties. The more the priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. So going on about how are these guys becoming or prospering? How do priests prosper? You see, the priests judge success by size. They live sumptuous lives and they lack purity of devotion to God. And during the reign of King Jeroboam II, there was uh, political economic prosperity. There was an expansion of religious activity. This is what makes this prophet so uh, important here. Things were going well. People were gathering to worship. People were bringing their sacrifices, bringing uh, all types of sacrifices. And because they were growing, the priesthood grew in number. There were more pastors, more leaders. But it brought greater sin. This exclusive and protected group became arrogant and cynical and shameless. Add to this this fact that when people sinned, they had to bring offerings to you of prime lambs or kids. Who would eat the prime lambs or kids? The priests. The more they sinned, the more they had to bring sacrifices, the more the priests had to fill up their stomachs. That's what I think he says, that, you know, they... They eat out of the sins. They gorge on the sins of the people. But then he continues, like people, like priests. No one will escape judgment. And it will be and it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. False teachers, bad teachers. People then start to follow them and follow their, their teaching, their false teaching. And we see it around the world today. And God comes in judgment. They will eat but not have enough. They will be engaged in prostitution but not flourish. Because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution, to old wine and new, taking away the understanding. Friends, what do you think about the contemporary world today? In the United States, for example, uh, over many uh, decades now, uh, the gospel has lost credibility because of the personal greed of religious leaders, of moral failures and lack of financial integrity by some Christian leaders, and televangelists here, to be exact. Prosperity teachers who are asking for money for their new jets to fly around the world to preach at places, uh, who live in uh, exorbitant mansions, who have multiple houses, they keep asking for money to do the work of the gospel, but live affluent lifestyles. It doesn't take much for an outsider, or or even a Christian, to look and think there's something not quite right with that and they want nothing to do with them. It's interesting, recently a number of uh, um, leaders of uh, prosperity teachers who have turned and have apologised for things. Uh, Benny Hinn has apologised for some of his teaching. That's been incorrect. Uh, Crefto Dollar, who's a leading uh, um, prosperity teacher in the United States, has now uh, changed his teaching on tithing did explain the tithing's now an Old Testament principle, not a New Testament principle, but they're urging people to give and give and give. And some of them are starting to realize that maybe they should change some of their teaching. I don't know if it's the work of God or it's simply because they want a better reputation. But you see, I remember when I was teaching and, uh, at Maracle High and, uh, and the, I remember the head teacher, mathematics, Ross, said to me one day, when a, a pastor had fell fall into sexual sin or one of these televangelists had you know, been caught out with a prostitute or they just ripped off people millions of dollars. Oh, and Christians, you know. Yeah, what are you into? What type of things do you get up to? 
in your spare time. It gives ammunition for the enemies of the gospel to take away the credibility of the church. The other thing is also that uh, bigger is better. You know, in uh, Hosea's time, King Jeroboam would say, what are you talking about? God has prospered us politically, economically, religiously. Best times in our history. Well, friends, big is not always better. It's better to be small and to have the true gospel than to be big and have no gospel at all. And then he says in verses 12, I'll just read these 19, he just sums up their, their evil, their spirit of prostitution and stubbornness and why judgment is coming. He says, my people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray and they are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar and terabith where the shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution or your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shrine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. Though you, Israel, commit adultery, do not let Judah become guilty. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not go up to Beth-Avon. And do not swear, surely, as the Lord lives. The Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. How then can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away and their sacrifices will bring them shame. You ask the question, why could you be so bad? What is it about a stone idol that is better than the true God? If you were alive then, would you have been tempted by the idols, by the shrine prostitutes for better fertility? And uh, so a writer, uh, Douglas Stewart, writes, he says, nine reasons why we probably would have been seduced by the same things. And he suggests this is what we've been seduced by today, nine things. He said, idolatry was easy because it was believed to guarantee the notice of the gods. See, the idols there, if you've got a stone, you think, well, if there's a stone in front of me, I'm talking to it, I'm offering to it, then hopefully the real God will, you know, will, will notice me. Secondly, it says, it was selfish. You give food and hopefully you get something back. It was easy. You could just go to, you know, you had to find Yahweh. Well, he's not there, right? But the statues are everywhere. You can always take an offering. It's easy. Easy worship. It was convenient. To worship Yahweh, you had to go on a pilgrimage three times a year. But idols, they're up on the hill and the mountains. You didn't have to go into Jerusalem. Just hang out. It's really easy. And convenient. It was normal. Everyone was doing it. Anywhere you looked outside of Israel, they had statues. It seemed logical. If there are many gods, you want to have a variety of statues of many gods. You don't want to miss out on any of the gods, right? Israel says there's only one god, but it's all these gods. Maybe they can help me. It was pleasing to the senses, involving icon worship of all sorts and rituals like bowing and kissing. But the worshippers of Yahweh had to put up with an invisible God who forbade any depiction of himself. God says, don't make an idol of me because I'm not this stone. I'm not this statue. Don't make anything. Israel said, like, oh, well, these guys have all these statues. Let's go and play games with their God. It says it was indulgent. Frequent meals, meat meals, gluttony, heavy drinking. And finally, it was erotic. 
Sex with a prostitute, male or female, depending on your sexual preference, was not merely allowed but encouraged as an act of worship symbolising agricultural fertility. Think about that. Why do people worship sport, money, career? It's easy, it's erotic, uh, it's, you know, it seems logical, it's normal, everyone else is doing it, it's convenient, I don't need to go to church, I can do whatever I like, I worship my God in my bathroom or in my lounge room or on my beach. I think it's no different today. And then we uh, think, so what will happen? God will come in judgments. But in chapter 6, I want you to notice that there was a, an example of a superficial repentance. Chapter 6, 1 to 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. It's a call. Well, maybe let's go back to God. Let us press on to acknowledge him, to know him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He'll come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. After chapter 4, chapter 5 is the word of judgment. And now, though, it seems like the people think, oh, let's go back to God. We are in terrible trouble, right? But it's a superficial repentance here. There is no acknowledgement of sinfulness nor guilt. You look at those verses, they don't say, we have sinned against God, let's go back to him. No, 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 let us just return to the Lord. There's no admission of guilt anywhere. In chapter 14, verse 2, we'll come to that in a few weeks, the nation is called to admit their sins, and as they do, God forgives them and restores them. There's no admitting of guilt here, no admitting of sins. Friends, true repentance will lead to a changed lifestyle. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, listen to the hard words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles and go to church every Sunday and give our money to support mission? Did we not do all those things? Then he'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. God is not filled by superficial repentance. Verse 4, it says, What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. It's unsteady, it's fleeting, it's changeable. It's like the morning mist. God says, I don't trust your coming. I don't trust your repentance. It's not true. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. Then my judgments go forth like the sun. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Friends, the heart of true religion is mercy and knowledge of God. I desire, I love this, mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And I remember when I was in my 20s, uh, coming across Amos chapter 5. Some of the, the most, I mean, strong words from God, a different prophet, I think Amos was tougher than Hosea. It says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, see, they were doing all the religious things, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like an ever-failing stream. God says, I care how you live. I care about justice and righteousness and love and mercy. Matthew 9, 13, Jesus said, Go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And friends, and someone would say, what do we do with this church? Well, the reason why we support Baptist World Aid and child sponsorship and gift cards or Operation Christmas Child or Bibles for the Persecuted Church programs or giving gifts for needy children at Christmas at Riverwood or providing food hampers for people in our community or meals, why we run evangelistic events, why we have chaplains in hospitals, in motor racing, in sporting teams, why we support Access Life in Bali, clean water projects, mobility missions, why we run playtime groups to serve people, provide a place of safety and encouragement and growth, why we run computer classes, why we do everything we do, it's mercy in Christ's name. It's mercy in Christ's name, isn't it? See, God's people in Hosea's time had failed to show mercy. And we need to remember that God desires that we do more than gather on a Sunday, but that we worship him on a Sunday, we hear him and get uh, a greater knowledge of him on, on a Sunday as we gather, and in our small groups, uh, and that we might minister for his glory. And finally, he says there are people who will not escape judgments. Chapter 419 it says, a whirlwind will sweep them away and their sacrifices will bring them shame. In chapter 5, 14 and 15, for I'll be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair, my place I can rest, until they have borne their guilt and seek my face. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Then 7, 13 to 16, woe to them because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, because they have rebuilt against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. I train them and strengthen their arms, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. God says, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not putting up with sort of living any longer. They refuse to acknowledge me, and they live terrible, idolatrous lives. Friends, as we conclude, we need to remember that judgment is real. God's judgment in the Old Testament came physically and immediately. But there's another judgment to come, an eternal judgment. And we leave this side of the cross. We know that Christ, through his death and resurrection, has made a way of forgiveness, a way of restoration to prepare us for that final day. It will be a terrible thing to find yourself under the judgment of God, the eternal judgment. That's why workers go to friends. That's why we run kids' club ministries. That's why we go to schools with the message of the gospel. That's why we support workers at universities. That's why we have chaplains. Because although the false teachers will say it's okay, we'll end up, we'll end up in heaven at the end. Or the false teachers will say, oh, there are many ways to God, don't worry, don't stress, go out and have a picnic. The truth of the gospel is, Christ is our only hope. There is a future for the people beyond judgment. And for us, thankfully, in these uh, encouraging words, God's grace sent Christ to die on the cross to take the judgment for us, for us. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And he calls us to genuinely repent, put our faith in him. Don't be like Israel. Don't be like the people in Hosea's day. But know him, be changed by him, 
and show mercy. May God help us to do that. Lord God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. That is only in Christ that we can be forgiven and given eternal life. But we thank you, God, that you care about how we live. And so we ask that we will live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds made possible by the power of your Spirit and glorify you on the day you return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.